Daniel chapter 11 tonight. Next week, we finish our study of Daniel. So two weeks from tonight, we begin our study of the book of Revelation. Hope you'll be able to join us for that as well. I'm going to make a bold statement tonight. I believe that Daniel chapter 11 is the most immense chapter in all the Bible. It is immense. We're not going to try to even attempt to cover all the details in this chapter. This chapter covers the answer to Daniel's prayer from the time that Daniel is living all the way through to the time of the Antichrist in the last days. That, that's how immense this is. What I want us to do tonight, though, is to divide this chapter up into three sections. The first section is the first four verses. Then there's the large middle section, verses 5 through 35, and then there's the final section, verse 36, to the end of the chapter, verse 45. Again, as I shared before our time of worship tonight, this chapter is a rich testimony of our glorious God and the trustworthiness of his word. One of the themes that runs throughout the book of Daniel is the conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. And we see that playing out here again in Daniel chapter 11. The first thing I want us to see is, and this is where sometimes the chapter divisions in our English Bible are unfortunate, because obviously they're not inspired like the words are. And really, the beginning of chapter 11 is a continuation of chapter 10, where if you recall from last week, it's the whole chapter about how uh, there are fallen angels in charge of certain geographical regions and this angel was sent from God, dispatched to answer Daniel's prayer, and he was held up by a fallen angel for three weeks, and he couldn't get to Daniel, and finally Michael helps him, and he finally gets to Daniel with the answer to his prayer. And he says, if it wouldn't have been for Michael, I'd still maybe be battling this fallen angel who is, you know, was attempting to uh, keep me from getting to Daniel. Then he says at the beginning of chapter 11, speaking of now this angel that was dispatched to give Daniel this message, the good angel, he says, in the first year of Darius, the Mede, I stood to, pro to strengthen him and to provide protection for him. So he's telling Daniel, listen, the angels of God stand with you. And they even stand with kings and leaders of nations and even people that do not know God, if that's part of God's plan to provide supernatural protection for a certain person or a certain leader. And we certainly can take heart to that truth as believers because the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that God has sent forth his angels to be ministering spirits to those who will inherit salvation, Hebrews 1, verse 11. We also have that great story that illustrates this in the Old Testament book of 2 Kings, where Elisha is surrounded by the Syrian army, 
And his servant Gehazi is all upset, like, we're going to die, Elisha. And Elisha says, do you not see the armies of God all around us? And so Elisha prays to God and asks God to open the eyes of his servant so that he can see the chariots of fire and the angels all around them. You see, God has his angels surrounding us to protect us. They are sent there to minister. And obviously, God could do it without them, but just like us, God chooses to use them, you see. And that's part of his plan. And so I want us to be encouraged tonight that God stands with us at all times and even dispatches his angels to surround us, to protect us, and to strengthen us as he does here Darius the Mede in Daniel chapter 11. Another thing I want us to see in the first four verses is notice verse 2. The angel tells Daniel, now I will tell you the truth. You might think, well, yeah, this is a message from God. It is true. I, no, no. But what he's saying here is, no, Daniel, I'm going to tell you some things that are so far out there, so incredible that you've got to know this is really true. And, and it reminds us that even the things that God chooses to reveal to us sometimes can sort of blow our mind. Can you imagine the things that God has chosen not to tell us yet that we're going to experience someday? And, and it's just a reminder that God is full of surprises, and, and God can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, and that you and I have to understand the things that God has revealed to us that even seems way out there, it's really true. It, it's, it's really going to happen just the way God said. In fact, one of the things that I'm sort of, you know, familiar with right now because I'm studying Second Peter for our sermon series on Sunday morning is I'm already, you know, drilling down in chapter 3 where the Peter reminds us that one day after the millennial reign of Christ, that God is literally going to melt the universe that he created and destroy it and make a new heaven and a new earth for us to dwell in for all of eternity. I'm thinking, whoa. He's literally going to destroy the universe as we know it. This is really true. I mean, I know that's a lot for us to take in, but it's really true. Or what about being part of his eternal kingdom? Try noshing on that for a while. Eternity never ends, forever and ever. Well, how long is that? Well, a billion years from now, it's still going to go on. I and, mean, you know, we just, but it's really true. It's really going to happen. And that's what the angel said. And then this. We learn in verses 3 and 4, and then comparing that to the larger section, verses 5 through 35, that we must learn to interpret history the way God interprets history. See, prophecy is not merely telling his story, God's story, or history beforehand. Prophecy is also God's interpretation of that history. Why do I say that? Well, in verses 3 and 4, you have a description of the last of the Persian kings, the greatest of them, Xerxes, Ahasuerus, the fourth king, who is unusually rich, who, by the way, is also the husband of Esther, right? And then in verse 3, or excuse me, that's verse 2. In verse 3, we are introduced once again to Alexander the Great, 
Okay. And then verse 4 reminds us shortly after he rises to power and conquers a large portion of the earth at that time, his kingdom will be broken up. He dies at 33 at the height of his power, and his kingdom is distributed towards the four winds because his kingdom is divided between four of his generals, not, as the Bible says, his posterity. And those four generals will never reach with their kingdom, the extent that Alexander had. And that's all it says. Then in verse 5, it changes. And we're going to get into this in just a minute. But in verse 5, God now begins to talk about the Seleucid Empire or dynasty in Syria that is established and the Ptolemaic dynasty in Egypt that is established. That's where you have, throughout verses 5 through 35, the king of the north, that's Syria, just cut to the chase, and the king of the south is Egypt. And God spends, what, 30-some verses on the Seleucid dynasty and the Ptolemaic dynasty or Syria and Egypt compared to just a little bit about Alexander. Now, if you would go to any history book, the Seleucid dynasty and the Ptolemaic dynasty would take up about that much of your history book, and Alexander would take up like that much of your history book. So why is it reversed here? Well, listen, what I'm not saying and what God is not saying is that Alexander the Great did not have some major impact upon civilization. Obviously, he did. But he did not have a direct impact link, if you will, to the people of God. And he really wasn't directly in the center of God's plan, especially in connection with his people. But Syria and Egypt were. You see, Syria is just north of Israel, and Egypt is just south of Israel. So Israel's that cream of the Oreo cookie that's in the middle of those two nations. And everything that those two nations did affected the people of God in the Holy Land. That's why God spends way more time talking about the Syrians and the Egyptians rather than talking about Ahasuerus or Alexander the Great, which should be an encouragement to us even today because it reminds us that when God views history and when God prioritizes history, it's always about how it affects his people more than anything else. Now, think about that. That should be an encouragement to us. You see, just like here, I don't think God gets caught up with the nations as much as he does his people within those nations. The only reason that he is spending so much time on Syria and Egypt in verse 5 through 35 is because those two nations are basically battling over the land of God and the city of God, as we're going to see in just a moment. And that affects God, and that affects his people. See, I think today God is interested in how things in the world are affecting his people, the church, 
not so much the individual nations, because as we've seen in the book of Daniel, nations come and go. Kingdoms rise and fall. Leaders come and go. But God and his people are part of his eternal plan. So that's what we see in the first four verses. So let's come to verse 5 through 35 and just mention a couple things. Beginning in verse 5, Egypt is certainly the stronger of these two nations battling over who's going to control the nation in the middle, Israel. But beginning in verse 10 through verse 19, God prophesies events that indicate that Syria will finally gain ascendancy over Egypt and in doing so would also gain control of the Holy Land, which again is why God is spending so much time and why he's telling Daniel all these details. And let me stop here for a moment and also say how this is playing out to Daniel. All Daniel was really asking God for in his prayer was, God, how's this whole 70-year exile going to work out? And when's it going to end? And God gives him way more than that, right? But God is doing so to build hope into Daniel. Because right now, remember, Daniel was mourning for three weeks as he was praying because of the unresponsiveness of God's people, because when they were finally able to go back to their homeland, most of them didn't. They stayed in Babylon. They got comfortable there. And so they didn't go back and rebuild the city and rebuild the temple and all of that. And Daniel is grieved over the fact that God's people don't care about the land that God gave them and that he wants them there because that's the land that he marked out for them to be in. And God is saying to Daniel, Daniel, I want you to know the truth. This is really true. It's going to get worse for the people of God before it gets better. (laughs) The history of God's people, the Jews, and the nation of Israel it's, it's going to be really difficult, okay? But I want you to know something. The end, if you can see that far, it's going to be good. As Paul says to the Romans, all Israel one day will be saved. During the tribulation period, the book of Revelation says there's going to be 144,000 Jewish evangelists that are going to spread out all over the world, and many of them are going to reach their own people and show them that Jesus is their Messiah. And in the tribulation period, thousands upon thousands of Jews are going to come to know the Lord. So God is saying, yes, my people are going to go through some horrendous times in history. In fact, He's going to go so far as to say, you know, to us, you think it was bad for the Jews during Hitler's time? Wait till the Antichrist comes. The Antichrist is going to make Hitler not look so bad, you see. So God wants to show him the truth, but wants to say, but the end is good. 
So you've got to be patient and let me work out my purposes. And God is always working out his purposes, both in the world, with the kingdoms of the world and the leaders of the world, and with his people who exist within this system. And we're going to see what God's purposes are to a degree here tonight. Just to show you also, you know, many people find it very interesting that Alexander the Great is mentioned in the Bible. Well, if you go down to verse 17 of Daniel 11, Cleopatra is also mentioned in the Bible. It talks about he will give the king of the south a daughter in marriage in order to destroy the kingdom. That's Cleopatra there in verse 17. We'll, we'll come back to some of these verses, okay? Now, by this time also, verse 19, here's what's happening in the world. Rome and the Roman Empire is becoming more and more and more powerful. So now, as the leaders of Syria, who have ascended over Egypt, are trying to flex their muscles in the world, here comes Rome to sort of squelch what they want to do. Because one of the things that Daniel is seeing here is that one day there's going to be this ruler who comes out of Syria called Antiochus Epiphanes. In fact, again, in Daniel chapter 11, you see details of his rule and reign from verse 21 all the way through verse 35. And you go, why is God spending so much time on just one ruler from Syria? Because Antiochus is the one who went into Jerusalem and tore down the city and tore down the temple and defiled it in what the Bible calls the abomination, verse 31, that causes desolation. He literally went into the temple. He set up a statue of Zeus in the temple of God. He desecrated the things of God in that temple, and it's even said that he sacrificed a pig on the altar. That's why God spent so much time on Antiochus, because it had a direct link to the city of God, Jerusalem, to the temple of God, and it directly affected the people of God. So that's, again, what I want us to see. Prophecy is not just God telling us what's going to happen in history before it happens. It is his interpretation of history. And God is always viewing history from how it, it works into his plan and how it affects his people more than anything else. So I'll leave you with this to consider. Where does the United States of America fit into God's plan? Because many ask me over the years, do you find the United States mentioned in prophecy? And my answer is, no, you don't. I'll let you then, yeah, consider that. All right, back to the text. Here's what I want us to get out of verses 5 through 35. A number of applications we can glean from this immense passage here. First of all, this passage reminds us of the instability of kingdoms and rulers in this world. Evil is always unstable. 
And what you have in Daniel 11 is pretty much repetitious of what you find throughout the book of Daniel when Daniel is describing or when God is describing the kingdoms of this world. They're always rising and falling, and they are very unstable, and the wicked who lead them are very unstable. That's what evil is. In fact, to counteract that, I want to remind us of something Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that, again, should be an encouragement to us. Because if we are the people of God, then that means that our stability is God and his word, and that's what it should be. Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who builds his house on rock. The rain fell, the flood came, and the winds beat against that house, but it did not collapse because it had been founded on rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the flood came, and the winds beat against that house, and it collapsed. It was utterly destroyed. No stability. The only stability is for us to place our lives upon God. He is our rock. And that's why even, you know, we sing songs like, we will not be shaken. Because we are to be opposite and distinct of the world. The world is totally unstable. And that's why sometimes it's sort of, I don't even know what the word is that I'm looking for, but it's like, I guess it surprises me when Christians are so surprised about living in an unstable world. Like, can you believe how crazy the world is? No, it doesn't really surprise me because the world, apart from God, is always going to be unstable. <laughs> Satan, the prince and power of the air, is a totally unstable creature. And everything that he's a part of, unstable. So that's one of the things that we can gain from that. Again, opposite encouragement, when you build your house upon the Lord and upon his word, you're building it on a rock, solid ground. And that's what God wants his people to see tonight. Secondly, evil gains a foothold because of a spirit of cooperation with the people of God. Evil only can gain a foothold because of the spirit of cooperation with the people of God. In other words... They give in and allow evil to have a power over them that they would not have to have, just like today. There, there is nothing in the world of darkness that has to take a power over us. Or if the Bible tells us to even be able to resist the devil and he'll flee from you, then that means there is no power in the darkness that can gain control of us unless we give it power. Just like there's no person that should have power in our lives that they shouldn't unless we give them that power. And that's what's happening here. Let me show you this. During the influence and, and the awful deeds that Antiochus Epiphanes, the leader of Syria, does, he does it, one reason is because, look at verse 30, at the end of the verse. 
He will return and honor those who have forsaken the holy covenant. See, he's going to weasel his way into the holy land, and he's going to look for people who have already turned their backs on God, and he's going to honor the people who have turned their backs on God. Notice verse 32. Then with smooth words, he will defile or corrupt those who have rejected the covenant. They've turned their backs on God. Therefore, they've opened themselves up to this invitation, if you will, to be part of something evil. That's why the greatest commandment in Scripture is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Why is that the greatest? Because if I'm totally devoted and committed to God, then the evil that tries to draw me away won't allure me, won't captivate me, because my heart has already been captivated by my God, and he's my greatest love. Therefore, anyone who tries to gain a foothold in my life isn't going to have much success because my heart is already with God. But we're going to get to this in a couple of weeks. Even in Peter, when my commitment and devotion to God isn't where it should be, then I'm opening myself. I, I become vulnerable to other invitations. And that's why you'll notice, first of all, they had rejected the covenant. They had turned their backs on God first, and then guess what? Old Antiochus comes in and says, hey, I'll make you great. You know, you'll be great in my kingdom. Well, just like the rest of evil kingdoms, his kingdom was very short-lived. And then this is where I want to spend the majority of my time tonight. And I'm just going to ask you, please bear with me tonight because we're going to cover a lot, but I really want us to get this tonight because this is, to me, maybe the main part of this whole immense chapter on pretty much the history from, from God's people from Daniel all the way to the end. This passage reminds us that man plans, but God intervenes. God is sovereign. Man has his plans, but God can always intervene. Where do we see that? We see that throughout this chapter with a very small little word, a conjunction that is used quite often, but just because it's used quite often doesn't necessarily mean it's always significant like it is in this chapter. And it's the conjunction, but. I want you to see how often this is used in this chapter, and it always illustrates that God has the last word. Begin with me in chapter 11, verse 6. After some years have passed, they will form an alliance. Then the daughter of the king of the south, Egypt, will come to the king of the north, Syria, and make an agreement. But she will not retain her power, nor will she continue in her strength. The whole thing falls apart. Their plan. Look at verse 9 of chapter 11. Then the king of the north will advance against the empire of the king of the south, but will withdraw to his own land. Why? Because he retreats, because he's been soundly beaten. There's that word but again. Go up to verse 11. 
Then the king of the south, again, Egypt, Ptolemy, will be enraged and will march out to fight against the king of the north, Antiochus the Great, not Antiochus Epiphanes, who will also muster a large army, but that army will be delivered into his hand. Notice we are reminded that even the results of great conflicts are in the hand of the Most High God. Throughout this chapter, you're going to see, this is what man was doing, but... Look at verse 12. He will be responsible for the death of thousands and thousands of people, but he will not continue to prevail. Who brings his power to an end? God. See, God sets limits even on the evil of how long it can exist and what it can do. And then eventually God says, enough, you're done, but. Go down to verse 18. Then he will turn his attention to the coastal regions and will capture many of them. But a Roman commander will bring his shameful conduct to a halt. Verse 19, he will then turn his attention to the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall not to be found again. Verse 20, there will arise after him one who will send out an extractor of tribute to enhance the splendor of the kingdom. But after a few days, he will be destroyed, though not in anger or battle. His own people will turn against him and murder him. See? Look at verse 24. Antiochus Epiphanes will distribute loot, spoils, and property to his followers. He will devise plans against fortified cities, but then notice, not for long. This phrase reminds us that, again, God sets limits over the evil that men do. Can you imagine if God wasn't in control? And men could just keep on doing what they were doing, and there wasn't no time limit to it, no God to be able to step in and say, enough, you're done. And that's what we're finding, and, and that should be an encouragement to us, not to be afraid, not to be upset, not, not to, you know, get all stressed out about the things that are going on in the world because our God, the most high God, is in control of what goes on on this earth. And no king or no kingdom is going to do anything without him allowing it. And if he allows it, he's only going to allow it for a time. And if he allows it at all, it's going to ultimately be for his glory and for the ultimate good of his people. Verse 27, these two kings, their minds filled with evil intentions, will trade lies with one another at the same table, but it will not succeed, for there is still an end at the appointed time. And whose time has been appointed? God has appointed the time, you see. At an appointed time, verse 29, he will again invade the south, but this latter visit will not turn out the way the former one did because Egypt's going to call for help from Rome, and Rome's going to come and squelch what Syria wants to do. One other one, one final one. Verse 32. Then with smooth words, he will defile again, corrupt those who have turned their backs on God. But guess what? Even in those days, God always had a remnant, a, a small group, but of true believers. And it says, but the people who are loyal to their God will act valiantly. 
I want to talk about that verse for a minute because it's a good verse. It's a verse that should be an inspiration to us today because just like the people of God who were living during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes and all that was going on there and all the upheaval and how it seemed like evil and darkness was winning, there was a small remnant of people who were loyal to their God and they were acting valiantly in the midst of it. Let's talk about what this means. First of all, our loyalty to God is not based on ignorance, but on knowledge. In fact, in other translations, maybe ones that you have, it says the people who know their God. And simply the reason why the Net Bible translates it loyal is because it's the implied meaning of that word knowledge. We are loyal, we are devoted, we are committed to our God, not based on the fact that we don't know God, but actually the opposite. The more you know God, the stronger you are. Because this word know speaks about a very intimate, firsthand, experiential knowledge of God. In other words, the more I truly know God, the stronger I become. The more I will have the ability to act valiantly. It speaks about acting heroically and with great effect. It's not just doing something, you know, it's actually, it's effective. It works. And how do you know that it works? Because if you have that kind of intimate, firsthand, experiential knowledge of God, then you're going to be receiving from God exactly what you should do in the midst of the mess that you're living in at the time, just as they were. I hope that verse will encourage you. I hope all of those buts... <laughs> will encourage you throughout the chapter 11. Man plans, but always remember God intervenes. And remember that and apply that to your own life. You may come up to a situation in your life where you, you have this trial or this challenge or some terrible news or, you know, something horrific, and all of a sudden you're like, what am I going to do? How am I going to handle it? And what you and I have to realize is, well, here's what we're faced with, but let's let God have the last word. Let's make sure that we're letting God be the one that defines this and not us. Because all we can see is what we can see. God can see it all. God can see it all. But God. Then one other section. From verse 36 through verse 45, we are literally hurtled way ahead in time to the time of the Antichrist. You say, why is verse 36 through 45 all the way to the future about the Antichrist and doesn't continue about Antiochus Epiphanes because if you read the details of verse 36 through verse 45, they don't match Antiochus Epiphanes. And the other sort of clue to interpretation here is in verse 36 when it says, this man will succeed until the time of wrath is completed. That is a phrase that speaks about the great tribulation. So now God is going to give Daniel even some information about the final world ruler of the final world empire. A couple things. Notice that the Antichrist is in a quest for autonomy to be a God unto himself. 
Then this king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every deity. He will utter presumptuous things against the God of gods. He will succeed until the time of wrath is completed. For what has been decreed must occur. Notice, there's God's sovereignty. The word of God is saying this has already been determined in the four counsel of God. God knows that this is what's going to happen. So can't change it. It's going to happen. Let it happen. We keep knowing God, being loyal to our God, and act valiantly. He will not respect the gods of his fathers, verse 37, not even the God loved by women. He will not respect any God. He will elevate himself above them all. The Antichrist is not going to be a religious person because religion is going to be him. He will seek to wipe out all religion. It will be the worship of him alone. What he will honor is a God of fortresses, verse 38, meaning all he cares about is military powder, power and material wealth. A God his fathers did not acknowledge he will honor with gold, silver, valuable stones, and treasured commodities. He will attack mighty fortresses aided by a foreign deity. To those who recognize him, he will grant considerable honor. He will place them in authority over many people, and he will parcel out land for a price. Hey, you fall down and you, you worship the Antichrist, he'll be your friend and he'll honor you. It talks about him wanting to extend, verse 42, his power against other lands. Even the land of Egypt will not escape. He will have control over the hidden stores of gold and silver, as well as all the treasures of Egypt, Libya, and Ethiopia will submit to him. But reports will trouble him from the east and the north. See, not everybody, even during the tribulation, is going to fall down and comply with the Antichrist. He will set out in a tremendous rage to destroy and wipe out many. But here's what I want us to get to tonight in our end. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas, the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Sea, and toward the beautiful holy mountain, Mount Moriah, the place of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. But then notice this. He will come to his end with no one to help him. After all this information, if you will, and description about the Antichrist, his end comes in a very anticlimactic way. Why? Because God doesn't want us to get all enthralled and, and enamored and captivated by the Antichrist. Satan's masterpiece is nothing compared to our God. In fact, I want to leave us with this tonight. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8. I know there's been a lot here tonight. All I can tell you is this is an immense chapter. Next week, we'll do a little bit better. Chapter 12 is a lot more manageable. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's begin at verse 7. For the hidden power of lawlessness is already at work. Oh, it is. However, the one who holds him back, God, will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then the lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed. And here it is. Whom the Lord will destroy literally, literally, not by the breath of his mouth, with a breath, and wipe out by the manifestation of his literal glorious arrival. Satan's masterpiece, maybe the greatest 
human being, at least humanly speaking, empowered totally by Satan that's ever existed on planet Earth only has maybe three and a half years to exert his influence. I mean, he's one of the shortest-lived kings, if you will, that the earth ever sees. And his end is so anticlimactic for all the, you know, brouhaha that people give the Antichrist. The Bible says our glorious Lord literally takes a breath and he's destroyed. Now, I don't know about you, but instead of getting all caught up and worried about the kingdoms of the world and who's in charge and even the coming of the Antichrist and are we living in that, what we need to do is just keep on knowing our God and being loyal to our God and acting valiantly and let God take care of the things that are out of our control that's much bigger than us because though maybe the Antichrist and the kingdom of the Antichrist and all these things about the last days may seem maybe overwhelming and intimidating, they're nothing to our God. Jesus is so much greater that he literally draws a breath and the Antichrist is gone. That's how great Jesus is. And I'm so glad that's why we're here tonight. And that's who we worship each and every day. God, I thank you tonight that you remind us that history is your story, God. That you have plans and purposes for allowing the things that you do and for the people to rule and reign that you do for as long as they do. But God, you're still in control. At any time, you can intervene as you have done throughout history. No matter what man plans, you can always intervene and interrupt and change the course of history. So, Lord, I pray tonight that we would be encouraged by this immense chapter tonight. It is so much to take in that it, it literally would take weeks to absorb all that is in this chapter. But if we don't take anything away other than, God, I can trust you. I, I can rest in you because the kingdoms of this earth are in the hand of the Most High God. And we are in your hands too, God, as your people. So, Lord, I just pray tonight that whatever anxieties and worries and stresses and all of that, Lord, that might creep into our lives at times because of the days that we're living in, that we might just learn to just trust you more and more and be inspired by those people of God in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes who were loyal to their God and acted valiantly. God, there's heroes right here tonight and I pray, God, that you would raise up more heroes of the faith so that we can be effective in bringing the gospel to a lost world before you come back and in strengthening your people before you come back. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks for hanging in there with me tonight. We'll see you next week.